0: Hello, I'm Philip Brain, and I'm Harry Clennon, and you're listening to Birdseye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles or Birdseye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows, Insight and Focus. We live in the most peaceful period in history. The wars that we do have are mostly internal, and very few people, compared to the past, die in them. Even going back 400 years, the history is consistent. One or two major wars that engulfs much of the world each century. But since World War II, there's been very little. We almost have to wonder why. Answers abound, but one historical anomaly to accompany another, the past 30 years have been a unipolar moment. One country, America, mostly in command of the world. For the 50 years before that, it was a bipolar moment. Also irregular, only two countries, US and USSR, largely in charge. But is this sustainable? Can America's dominance last forever? What happens if it's beginning to fade right now? Can international institutions pick up the slack? Who can give us the answers? All this and more we're about to discuss.
1: Yeah, so I want to start with this idea of the end of the unipolar moment. And if you don't know, and we'll link it in the show notes, the unipolar moment, the the concept takes its name from an article called The Unipolar Moment, by the conservative commentator Charles Krauthammer, who wrote it at around the time just after the fall of the Soviet Union in, the, in 1991. Um, and at that time, right, the, the basic thesis of the article was, there is one country that is the preponderant economic and military power in the world, and it is the United States, and it will drive world events for this near foreseeable future at, at that time. And I mean, you know, if you look at it today, for a long time, I think you could argue Crownhammer's basic thesis was right, right? We didn't see sort of a split of many powers in the world immediately for the past, I don't know, you know, for about 20 to 30 years, maybe still today or less so today, as I'll get into right now, the United States has been the world's most powerful country, and it has directed world affairs to a great extent. But today, there are a lot of signs that that is no longer quite the case. There are obviously the ones you've heard a lot about. For example, China is angling to take over Taiwan. There are you know, outstanding questions as to how soon and by what means, whether that's military or otherwise, but we do know that it's the plan. And as we speak right now, Russia has troops massed on the eastern border of Ukraine and may invade as soon as in the coming weeks. And obviously, The American withdrawal from Afghanistan has widely
0: been seen as a sign of the nation's decline. I think, yeah, those are definitely the obvious examples that most people think of, and they're definitely relevant, but they're visible and even some of them mostly symbolic. The U.S. will remain the world's most militarily powerful country for years to come. There's not much sign of that changing anytime soon. China's building up its Navy and increasing its army and things like this. But ultimately, the difference in scale and technological capability, uh, there's a pretty wide gulf and it's going to take a while for anything like that to change. But at the same time, there is a lot of stuff going on beneath the surface of world order that suggests the end of unipolarity. I think one of them that I can think of. And I think, Harry, you also have one that you wanted to talk about. But one is that Europe seems to be moving, uh, albeit maybe slowly, in the direction of some sort of strategic autonomy, meaning that it would handle more of its own defense and therefore be free of some of the leverage that the United States has exercised in the past as essentially Europe's military. Right. I mean, you see this with Emmanuel Macron, ever since he first ran for office, he's been angling for European Common Defense Force. We mentioned in our last podcast episode that he and the new German chancellor just sat down and talked over the issue. And after the presidency of Donald Trump, I mean, earlier this week, Harry wrote an article about how increasingly the U.S. is still seen today as a fairly unreliable actor after the, Donald, after the Trump presidency and right. foreign policy. And so... Right. A lot of Europeans are feeling we can't really count on this situation for a lot longer. We shouldn't count on it, at least. And so we need to angle for something of our own. Power, but Harry, what what were you thinking of on this subject of sort of beneath the surface of the big headline issues where we see sort of hegemony declining?
1: Yeah, so you know we'll we'll take the sort of the, the elephant in the room here, China. I read a book a couple weeks ago, and I'll actually I think I'll be writing about it for my for my focus this weekend about China. It's called The Long Game by Rush Doshi, who's now in charge of China at the Biden National Security Council, and he basically argues that China is trying to supplant the United States as the world's hegemon. I'm I question that thesis, but he does point to a couple of really important things that suggest that there's been a regional building of hegemony by China in Asia. It's attempted to advertise the renminbi, which is its currency or one name for its currency as as a reserve currency, and it's introduced new technologies for financial transfers. It's obviously... It's obviously undertaken the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, that's involved in that is an an infrastructure investment bank called the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. So you can see that it's built sort of a lot of economic institutional power in Asia. And you could arguably even say, as some people do, that the United States is not really the economic hegemon in Asia anymore. And so Taiwan or no Taiwan, there's even a case to be made that China has already regionally supplanted the US.
0: Right and it certainly didn't help that we pulled out of the the Trans-Pacific Partnership that right. we had that was our economic foothold in the region but yeah. we won't we won't get we'll, into that discussion we'll pass on that it's a politically fraught one
1: yeah i do want to um, be careful a little bit here, not to overstate the case, right? Again, as, as we've pointed out- The
0: sky is falling!
1: <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. military budget is still three times as high as China's, or three times as large as China's. And it's not like the institutions that the U.S. has spent the past 75 years building and participating in are likely to crumble overnight, right? Well, so, we're Give in-
0: me an example there of- it an institution sort of that we think might have some longevity or some some potential?
1: Sure. I mean, like, I don't think like, I don't think like the UN Security Council is all of a sudden going to like disband, right? Right. Because of, you know, conflicts between the US and China, we could see its power fade. And I think we, you know, we'll get into that more later. I think that's very plausible, even likely, but I don't think that we're going to see sort of a, a collapse of international institutions in like, even the the next two decades—that would be—that would be surprising to me. But obviously, you can't project that far in the future. You don't know. So,
0: so even if we're not saying that the sky is falling, we are saying, just to put it very directly, that the unipolar moment is ending. Yeah, it doesn't mean that the U.S. is going to get invaded, that the world is going to collapse into total anarchy. It just means that the single-sided dominance of world affairs by the United States is becoming. A thing of the past. Right. So it's worth asking, okay, well, why is it happening? And then we're going to get into what might sort of be the result of this. And there are a bunch of explanations for why it's happening. We went through the different schools of international relations theory in the last episode. So if you haven't listened to it, be sure to. It sets up a lot of this. But obviously, what's happening varies on a case by case basis, but there are some common threads. One, you could say that and Harry wrote about this in an insight earlier this week, like I mentioned, about how domestic discontent and domestic problems with our democracy, domestic instability is driving a rough American foreign policy situation. Let's put it that way. The U.S. lacks a clear approach to managing its hegemony, and it's frustrated with globalization. It's frustrated with its own hegemony in certain ways in, in We've seen leaders like Donald Trump run on platforms of pulling back from that responsibility, turning to a sort of isolationism or something like that. And in some ways, you could think of liberal IR theory from the last episode, where it says that domestic politics are going to be important for understanding why states behave the way they do. Yeah, how world affairs turn out the way that they do and why states behave the way that they do in, in IR. And so liberal IR theory does predict some of this stuff. And so that's sort of part of the liberal explanation of why this might be happening, is domestic problems Mm -hmm. are driving the collapse of driving the decline of US hegemony.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think sort of another aspect of this is going back to sort of the focus of the last two episodes, you know, another theory of what's going on is that a lot of power has been delegated to international institutions, but they don't frequently function as well as they're intended to. They don't necessarily do a great job organizing international politics. And here you can sort of bring in unipolarity and realism, which suggests, right, ins- international institutions will only function insofar as it is in states' interest for them to do so. And in particular, that means powerful states like the US. So we can establish international institutions that will help organize politics, except for the fact that those institutions might only work as well as, for example, the United States wants them to. And you can also bring in constructivism here as a theory of international relations, right? I mean, the idea of constructivism is that if we sort of develop and facilitate cooperative identities that we come to identify with the global community more than particular nation states, institutions would work better. But if those identities are not developed, then they won't work. And you could argue that the United States has decided or made, made a decision to hang on to its hegemony rather than trying to establish a more global community, more higher levels of institutionalization. And one example of that would be the World Trade Organization, which is, I think, One of the more robust international institutions that actually has the capacity to sanction members for failing to uh, follow certain trade regulations, under the Trump administration and actually now the Biden administration, the WTO's highest appeals body has basically been wrecked because the United States has refused to allow the judges who are supposed to sit on that appeals body to actually be appointed. And so without that appeals body, the WTO can't actually sanction bad actors. The reason why the U.S. did this was because they wanted to impose tariffs on uh, China and other countries. And when the WTO, when they were losing cases in the WTO, they said, well, we're actually going to dip out. That's kind of a, I mean, you know, realism would suggest that that would happen, right? That an institution will only work insofar as, you know, significant powers actually want it to. And now that a significant power has decided because it's, you know, lost according to the rules of the game that it actually helped set up, it doesn't need to participate.
0: And I think one major and very simple explanation of what's going on here is that even as the u.s remains rich and powerful other countries have also gotten rich and powerful and they don't always see eye to eye with the u.s i mean we use china and taiwan as an example right. in the beginning of the episode I think china is the example that people That's where everyone's mind goes, yeah. Yeah. Frequently returned to you. Now, that might have eventually happened no matter what, and it's not necessarily to say that that is exclusively a bad thing. I mean, the humanitarian value of China getting richer has been great. I mean, if you care about people not living in poverty, abject poverty, and dying early of preventable diseases and things like that. Right. Uh, Which I I do. I imagine you also do, listener. I know Harry does not. (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) I'm a horrible person. But the U.S. did arguably accelerate that process by folding countries like China into the World Trade Organization, as I wrote in a focus from some time ago that we also discussed in the last episode a little bit. But with those, those are sort of, those are a few Explanations or theories as to why we're seeing um, an apparent growth in instability in world order today or an apparent breakdown of our previous sort of system of stability, even if maybe stability doesn't change that much. The way we achieve it is clearly changing or it seems like it's clearly changing. But it's worth asking then. What is next? What is the future of peace if these things are changing? Where are we headed with these changes in mind? And I think we can look at a worst case scenario, a best case scenario, and a sort of something in the middle, which I think generally Harry and I seem, of these three, think is most likely. But there are bits and pieces from each of these that are worth keeping in mind, and we're going to get into that. Right. So I'll just start with the worst case scenario. Just get it out of the way. Yes, there is a non-zero chance that with this changing structure of world politics today that we get a world war. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that. I mean, except uh, some kind of nuclear war, but we're just going to take that off the table because that's even hardly worth thinking about. This is what you would think would happen if you're sort of a hardcore realist. Or like is, an offensive realist, right? There's like offensive and defensive realists, Balancing yeah. versus war. Yeah, if you're John Bolton, <laughs> in which case you should shave. But just to give some detail about what this would look like, if that's sort of the prediction, is that, well, maybe China invades Taiwan and the U.S. responds and China and the U.S. engage in a hot war. You could also say, some people might say, we're, we're going to see it soon with Russia invading Central and Western Europe proper. I mean, NATO members, which would trigger like World War One, right. alliance defensive alliances, and an outbreak of a very large-scale confrontation. Right. I, I think that... There's varying likelihood between these two scenarios. I think China is probably a more competent and confident military power than Russia. Right. Yes, Russia is invading Ukraine, but there's a it's a complicated situation, and it doesn't look like they're going to go for the whole country or that they have designs to go further than that. Right. There are some things that maybe this theory gets right or that make it seem a little more credible. For one thing, history is on its side. As we mentioned in the outset, We are living in the midst of a sort of historically anomalous period of peace. And it does seem like things are getting pretty hairy compared to the past three decades. So, why not? Why couldn't this happen? But there are some things that this prediction doesn't seem to account for or take seriously that it probably should, that it might get wrong. For one thing, trade has, international trade, has really bound the world up together. It's hide us all in knots, and we don't really want to get out of them because it would be extremely painful to cut off those relationships to go full isolationist, to go to war. You have things like multinational corporations. I know, Harry, I think you wanted to say something. Well, like this. yeah,
1: I mean, I just think that, you know, whatever else you think of multinational corporations, if your interest is primarily in profit, obviously there are some multinational corporations like arms manufacturers who would profit off of war theoretically, but a lot of other ones would prefer to maintain, you know, normal trading relationships that allow them to, you know, continue raking in the big bucks. And, you know, these institutions, multinational corporations actually have, you know, significant power in the international system, maybe not quite as much as as the nation state, but certainly a lot. And they have a lot of influence over domestic governments. So they might be averse to the idea of conflict breaking out and slicing
0: off trade relationships. And they're powerful actors, right? which it points to something that realism maybe misses is that there are other actors besides states in the world. Liberalism would point to multinational corporations as an example of a sort of diverse actor that is more complicated, has different motivations than states. They don't just want power, they want money. And sometimes money is actually better made through peace Than through war, right? I mean, that's part of
1: that is yeah, and that's part of sort of what liberalism predicts about international relations is you create this interdependence between states and different states and multinational corporations and states, which would suggest that that level of interdependence actually creates vulnerabilities, as we as we mentioned in the previous episode, when it comes to conflict, right? If you if you go to war, you will lose all of those major gains from trade, and that obviously is particularly salient in the relationship between the US and China obviously
0: that sort of leads us to our best case scenario which is that we might see global peace a triumph of international institutions and a maybe semi smooth transition of power from the unipolar United States to maybe a bipolar, U.S. and China, or a multipolar, Russia, U.S. and China, or Russia, China, U.S. and Europe. In which institutions play the role of effective referee, basically. Right. So tell us about this prediction, Harry. It's the the good one.
1: Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, you can take some things from different... Schools of international relations theory, right? I mean, think something from liberalism. You could say, right, as we mentioned, trade has us all bound up, and you know, domestic populations might not be supportive of going to war. I mean, our, you know, do do you know U.S. voters really want to go to war with Taiwan? The evidence is mixed. Although actually, the support for defending Taiwan is increasing. So you know, maybe. Uh, institutionalization could occur and through you know sort of that interdependence developed from trade and diplomacy we would be less likely to go to war or constructivism would say that institutions have already changed the way we identify you know we talked a lot about the eu last week and how you know maybe that's played a major role in preventing war breaking out on the european continent um and maybe that could be you know expanded to the global system right that we come to identify with institutions I don't know like a really beefed up UN or something like that that actually has the power to tell states what to do and what not to do and we actually come to identify with those institutions our identities become wrapped up in them. more at the very least world leaders identities become wrapped up in those institutions and so maybe those kinds of things could prevent major war from breaking out and keeping the peace internationally optimistic but I suppose possible right I mean what what it, it does have there's some. A non-zero
0: chance, there's a non zero chance. There's a the there, bad
1: one. There's a non zero chance, right? I mean, like in some ways, we actually do live in a different period than any time before 1945. And
0: this is maybe something that this that this prediction right. has going for it.
1: Right. It really has. It's going for it. We live in, I mean, this alphabet soup of international institutions does exist. We right. are so tightly interwoven with through trade and technology. The world has like shrunk in many ways. Distance no longer carries the same weight that it once did. And countries have gotten larger regional orders like the EU have proliferated, and although nothing quite as quite as powerful as the EU. And the internet has
0: changed the way we think about ourselves and others. It's- an interesting thought. You might even be able to think of the internet not not quite by the book an international institution, but it is kind of interesting the way in which the internet serves as sort of an international bridge maker right. between countries right. and it can change the way we right. think about ourselves whether in a nationalist sense or in a more sort of global citizen or continental sense right. you know, if you look at Europe for right. example cuts either way you got that I watch development. Uh, my favorite show on TV I watch on the internet is a Canadian television show. So, you know, look, I love the Canadians and that's because of the internet.
1: Yeah. So there, I mean, I think this notion that we actually do live in a different world than any time before 1945 or any time before 1991, even, I mean, in some ways that sounds trite, but what I'm, what I'm really saying is that the landscape, the political landscape of world politics is fundamentally different in a way that it was not before the second world war. And that matters. But at the same time, we can see that maybe what's been exceptional about the last 80 years is not the proliferation of effective international institutions, but a bipolar order from 1945 to 1991 and a unipolar order from 1991 until nowish. And those things might be, have been the true ordering principles of world politics that led to a relative lack of interstate conflict since 1945.
0: So there's no real reason to have faith that things are that much different. It's also worth mentioning that the trade argument and this kind of stuff has been trotted out in the past. It's yep. trotted out right before World War One, It'll never happen. And it was trotted out right before World War 2 It'll never happen. Now, I think you can explain World War One as just profoundly idiotic world leadership, uh, profoundly idiotic national leadership in a lot of different places, right? which had zero accountability. They were monarchs in a lot of the countries. And you can chalk World War II up to extremely powerful ethno-nationalist motivations, which basically were not concerned in the same way with the potential damage of cutting off trade as other kinds of governments are, which are maybe a little more rational and less, less ideological. So it's worth pointing out that's been trotted in the past, but maybe those causes aren't so present today. Maybe there's less chance of sort of ideological drivers or or simple stupidity because we've seen it happen and maybe we won't repeat the same mistakes. But it is worrying that we've seen a sort of nationalist resurgence in China and in the West and Europe and the U.S. It's too early to tell whether that's really going to be material and powerful. But non-zero chance of the best case scenario. As much as we, as much as I've sort of qualified that as uh, it's unlikely, but the middle. The middle scenario, somewhere between amazing and awful, is a sort of tenuous multipolar peace in which in which we see the rise of new powers and not simple global peace where everyone's happy and everything's good and we're friends and we're trading, but you do see a sort of tenuous peace with maybe disorder and civil wars at the margins, right? But no great power conflict. Not wildly unlike what we saw with the cold war some proxy wars here and there some little invasions of small countries here and there. not to say that these things are dismissible but the scale of atrocity is going to be a lot lower in that kind of a situation than a world war right one thing this theory has going for it is that the us does remain as harry noted at the beginning the most powerful country in the world militarily there's really no getting aw- getting around that and it's not changing very very quickly it's also worth noting that the u.s and europe if they maintain their alliance their many alliances nato stays intact whatever the u.s and europe remain with the majority of the world's wealth so a kind of confrontation would be fairly unlikely simply because the odds aren't that good of picking a fight even if there's no unipolar moment the u.s and the u.s and europe still remain very much on top of the world's heap and so it would take a it would be pretty brash to pick a fight. Right. And so it's probably not super likely that you see one.
1: Yeah. The only problem there I would say is that there's not a lot of great historical precedent for multipolar peace. It's not, you know, when you have power distributed that way, there's sort of limited accountability. No one can tell you no necessarily right if no one has that kind of a claim. No no one country has the kind of alliance claim on another country that says no you actually can't go to war these this sort of tenuous peace doesn't hold together super well maybe there's an example a historical example in the concert of europe but you know that was A while ago, and even that did not hold forever. And it was mostly the result of,
0: you know, whatever piece it did achieve was largely because they got together and said, "Why are we fighting each other when we could all just direct our energy toward invading and dividing up the rest of the world?" Right, and that's uh, not something that's so possible. Not so possible today. Right, and so yeah,
1: and so I think you'd see, like, I mean, in some ways, I I I really do think that this sort of tenuous multipolar piece is likely because, to some extent, institutionalization has occurred and institutions are sticky in that they aren't just going to as i said at the beginning collapse overnight right and i think that you know the un and the security council will continue to be a forum for countries to sort of hash out their problems although it may become less effective at actually physically doing anything and you know the maintenance and the continued need for trade and interdependence will continue to endure but obviously i think you could see stuff for example like what happened in syria in 2011 and onwards when the united states and and Russia basically backed two different sides in a civil war. And that sort of has, you know, led to an extended conflict, which was horrific. So I mean, I think that kind of thing might become the norm, because on this on the sort of periphery, the big powers, which are bullies, don't really care what the small powers, you know, don't don't care so much about how the small powers are doing. And I think that you could see it, you know, sort of the, the animosities vectored into these sort of proxy wars on the margins. And right. that's that's what happened during the Cold War. And it's you know plausible that we return to something like that today.
0: Right. So to just wrap things up here, I think there is maybe one or maybe two key lessons that we can take away from these discussions about what are international institutions? What are some different explanatory and predictive theories of international relations and Ultimately, what is the future of peace? I think each prediction and explanation that we've ever gone through makes certain assumptions about who we are. Each school of IR theory promises structural explanations. The world is this way, and when the world is this way, these kinds of things will happen because of the structure of relations. But they don't quite work on their own without assuming certain things about human beings realism whether realist writers and thinkers consciously assume this realism doesn't quite work without an assumption that human beings are scared of each other desiring to acquire as much stuff as they can and also predisposed to violence to resolve their fear of other people they're distrustful because they fear that other people are going to kill them So they try to kill other people first, right? If you don't assume that about human beings, then realism and its rationale about what kinds of things will happen in the world just don't make sense.
1: Right. And then you've got liberalism, right? And liberalism assumes, similarly to realism, that people are acquisitive, right? That they want to gain more things. But contrary to realism, people are somewhat risk averse, right? They're not necessarily going to try and- They're not
0: spoiling for a fight.
1: They're not spoiling for a fight. Or they believe that they can cooperate to sort of overcome security problems. And so for that reason, right, you know, liberalism basically makes this foundational assumption that we're willing to work with others for our gain and for potentially mutual gain. And that allows for cooperation and democracy and all kinds of things like that.
0: And constructivism ultimately assumes that people are malleable. Rather than assuming much, you know, in substance about human nature, constructivism doesn't really work without assuming that human beings are blank slates, that they almost don't have any nature, and that anything is possible. We can identify with infinitely large, with an infinitely large and inclusive community, a world government perhaps, or a world nation. The point here of highlighting this, because it may sort of seem out of left field, but there's a point, which is that there's no science to explain all this stuff, what's going on in the world? Why is it happening? What's going to happen next? Because science demands on some level that we know what we're working with.
1: Right, I mean, like, you know, we argue as, you know, in in political science, people argue constantly in in international relations and political science people constantly argue over evidence and they say, this is the cause of it. And this is the cause of that. And, you know, people still argue about what caused World War One, looking back at the history and, and there's still debates over that in different schools of thought because humans are complex creatures. And, you know, we can't fully answer like these kinds of questions like in the way that you could explain sort of basic like natural science phenomena. So with that said, you know, we don't want to leave you hanging by a thread here and feeling dissatisfied. I mean, we can get pretty good at predicting lots of things even if there's no exact science. This just means that there's no use in placing all of our eggs in one basket of explanatory theories.
0: At the end of the day, politics and international relations is just people. And we don't quite know what people are. We don't know what it is to be human exactly. And each school of international relations theory is essentially a matter of faith, what we believe about who we are and can be, rather than a science. And there is no one true faith.
1: Every theory has its useful parts, even the craziest ones. But figuring out what's what and what's not is a personal struggle, because figuring out humans is a matter of philosophy,
0: not science. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website, also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter, if you haven't already, to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.